0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. If you've ever covered a crime beat or watched a police procedural or read a lot of true crime or listened to true crime podcasts or anything else, you know the details that police usually release after a murder. Location, time, age of the victim, name of the accused if they know it, and the name of the deceased if they know it. At least they almost always name the victim. The exceptions to that have traditionally been when the victim is a minor or has family that could be negatively impacted by the publicity or if the victim's family explicitly requests it. Recently, though, police departments across Canada have begun withholding the names of murder victims without any of the qualifiers I mentioned. And when we don't know who the victims are, there's not a lot to say about them. In some cases, we never even find out that there's been a murder. At least not until a reporter looks at the total number of homicides and realizes that something doesn't add up, that someone's missing. This seems like a trivial journalist thing, I realize. But it's not. We wouldn't do this if it was. There are advocacy groups and social workers who track murders committed against particular groups. Femicides, for instance, as we've discussed previously on this show. But homophobic killings and racially motivated killings and gang-affiliated killings, and the list goes on. If we don't know who the victims are, it's hard to figure out why they died. And beyond that, when real humans who have been killed don't have their stories told, none of us can learn about them or learn from what happened to them. So the question that both police forces and activists are asking right now is this. When someone is murdered, what does the public have the right to know about who they were and why they died? And the legal answer could have profound ramifications. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, this is The Big Story. Alicia Hashem is a courts reporter for the Toronto Star. Hello, Alicia. Hi. Do you want to start, maybe, um, for those of us who have never covered courts or or don't pay much attention to kind of the inner workings of the police beat, um, how do police releases usually cover a murder?
1: First of all, homicide is sort of a unique crime in the sense that it's the only crime for which police forces typically always release some kind of information, almost always release some kind of information when somebody dies. That is the uh, worst possible thing in our society um, for someone to take another person's life. So it occupies this sort of unique place. There's no other crime for which you would expect police to always release information. Mm -hmm. We have this, there is an expectation that information will be released. It's the it's a number that we follow very closely as reporters, the homicide number in a city which changes from year to year. At the end of the year, typically police will give a press conference and we'll ask questions about the homicide numbers. It's a, it's a number that's tracked really closely. So we get releases as they come into our inboxes. We get them for Toronto Police, but also around the GTA. And it's something that when press release comes into the inbox, typically there is a story that's done based on that information. So Every time, essentially, a homicide happens, there should be a story that goes out to the public. The public should be informed every time that happens. Now, whether that's happening the way it should be is slightly more complicated.
0: So given all that, then, what do they usually reveal about the crime itself uh, when one of those news releases hits your inbox?
1: Right. So usually the homicide is described in number you know, the first homicide of the year, the third, the 60th, depending on sort of when the release comes out, there might be, there would be a location of the incident. There would be, if someone's been arrested and charged, the name of the person arrested and charged, and then often the name of the person who has been killed, the victim. That's the typical information we would expect to find in a release if, or information about the person that they're looking for. Because often that's another reason that police release information is because they're trying to get help finding somebody who's wanted for a crime. But in some cases, that information is not released.
0: So what's been changing then? The amount of time police will release information about the victim? What have you, you seen recently that you and your colleague tried to, to dig into?
1: So, this is kind of a a function of beat reporting in in that we, you know, Wendy and I, and our other colleagues who report on crime, um, get these releases as they come in. We look at them um, regularly. Stories are written about them. And so, they're numbers that we track and watch closely to see if there's any trends in the kinds of homicides that we're seeing. And we'd been noticing um, a number of releases coming out in which a victim was not named or not identified. And not just in Toronto, but in in other jurisdictions as well. So with the OPP, with York Regional Police, and also with the the SIU, which is the police watchdog that oversees uh, police-related incidents. So including when police kill somebody. The SIU has a policy where they don't identify victims without the consent of families. That's a position they've held for a long time. Other police forces, it's a little more vague. They say they prefer to have the consent of family to release names, but they can do so for other reasons, such as public interest reasons. It's a little, it's a, there's no sort of clear policy. It's just general practice for victims' names to be released in the majority of cases. We were noticing that, especially in cases involving children, which are obviously very sensitive and, and sort of, you know, again, the worst possible thing that can happen, but also the kinds of cases where. There's great public interest and great public interest in prevention um, or identifying ways that this could have been prevented from, from a sort of public policy point of view. We'd noticed a couple of cases where um, the child was not identified and also in cases of uh, domestic homicide. So one of the examples that sort of jumped out at us in York region, there was a, um, a domestic homicide, alleged domestic homicide and the names of the couple were not released. York Regional Police said it was to protect the identities of their children. But ultimately, this information gets released to the courts. So all it really does is kind of delay the release of information. And we just sort of were trying to understand why, in some cases, a lot of information is released. And in some cases, not a lot of information is released because it doesn't seem to be particularly consistent.
0: I want to get into... The reasons why police might withhold that, um, and the argument for and against it. But first, maybe just practically, as a journalist, when that information is not released, what happens, and how does it impact uh, the coverage and the reporting of the murder?
1: This is an important point, and I, I think it's, it can feel a little bit like inside baseball because the sort of there is a feeling that well. Um, You know, the information isn't being kept secret, it's just not being released by the police. But the practical effect of not releasing information about the name of an accused person, which is often, so often what happens is if the victim is related to the accused person in some way, no one's name is released. So the victim's name is not released, nor is the accused person's name released. And without the accused person's name, it is almost impossible to find their court case, because our system is an extremely archaic system that is not sort of something that you can like go and search in a computer to find a case. You can't search by charge. You can't search by date. You have to call up the courthouse. You have to have a person's name. Sometimes what happens is they'll provide a court date, although often by the time they provide that court date, the hearing has already happened. But If it hasn't, you sort of go to court and you try and figure out based on looking at the docket, uh, which lists all of the people who've been charged and their accompanying charges and sort of try and figure out who the person is. In COVID, because we aren't typically going to courthouses anymore or being discouraged from going in person, uh, that docket is not accessible virtually in that way with the charges and the names. Only the names are put online. And just <laughs> to get even more granular about it, like if a person is charged and there's a bail hearing the next day, often their name names don't even make it onto the docket that's actually printed out. So all of which is to say it can be very challenging to identify a person and obtain the accompanying court documents and then follow the case through the system if this basic information is not released And the result of sort of needing to do all of that extra work is that cases either slip through the cracks and don't get covered or get sort of ignored, um, depending on when they come out. Um, People are just end up not being informed about certain cases in their community. You know, the star is fortunate to have me and my colleague, Betsy Powell, who sort of this is part of our our job and and we have resources to do that. And, you know, and. Increasingly, with the um the state of the journalism industry, that that kind of time and resources it takes to follow up on things like this is not something that necessarily happens. and uh it absolutely means that cases are not reported on that certain people that their deaths are essentially overlooked or ignored, and it's a, I think that's a real problem.
0: When you ask the police why they do this, um, I know you mentioned a few minutes ago that one instance is to protect the privacy of the victim's family, which, okay, fine. Are there other reasons? Is there an overarching uh, strategy that they're citing here? Like, Because this is changing, as you guys point out fairly rapidly.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's sort of, you know, this is not the first time we've written about this issue, and it's an issue that police forces are sort of across the country, even dealing with Edmonton police, as our story notes sort of did, had a, a very strange policy change where they suddenly decided that freedom of information or privacy legislation prevented them releasing the names. And there was a, a sort of a change of leadership and they had commissioned a report on why or what their new policy should be. All of which is to say that like There are a couple of reasons that police will say we're not releasing the name immediately. And that can be for, they might say, investigative reasons. So we saw recently that happened in a case where they didn't initially release a name because they said they were still doing an investigation. It could have jeopardized the investigation. We've seen that happen a couple of times now. That's a really subjective reason. But if it's being used to delay the release of the name rather than to prevent the release of the name entirely so that's one thing, and one part of it, I guess I should say in fairness, is also sometimes linked to publication bans, particularly right uh, when the youth criminal justice system is involved. The youth criminal justice system has a weird aspect of it where if a young person is accused of a crime and the victims of the crime are also young people, the victims can't be named, even though if the person, the alleged perpetrator, was an adult, it wouldn't uh, matter in terms of a publication ban. It's just sort of a weird quirk of the YCJA. And we saw an example of that recently. And the only way that you can name someone in those circumstances is with the consent of the family. So there are sometimes publication ban reasons, although we also have an sort of ongoing issue with overbroad publication bans that, you know, there's sort of questions about whether that's too broad and, and whether that sort of is necessarily preventing the naming of people or whether that's something that's kind of being invoked in order to to not name people
0: well it it all seems incredibly opaque like there's no clear guideline on anything
1: well that's it we one of the things we did was to ask what the policy is and you know because that's what the edmonton police force report um, was sort of looking into what should the policy be so that there's clarity for everybody about when a person is named when they are not named what kind of reasons there are for that so that everybody can understand kind of what the expectations are. Yeah. There's sort of a an issue of trust as well, to an extent. You know, there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about how much you can trust information that is released by the police. And, you know, a serious accountability issue exists if information is not being released and you don't understand why. And there's no other way to obtain that information. One thing I should really mention is sort of a really important part of this is, murder suicides, which are again, typically a woman being killed by her current or former partner. And those cases don't make it into the court system. Right. Right. There's no charges that are laid because the the perpetrator is dead. We would not find out about those cases if police didn't release that information. Uh, sometimes it emerges because A family member will come forward and talk to a reporter or something like that, or information will emerge online. But essentially, if police don't release information about those cases, we're never going to find out that it happened and what happened. And that creates a huge policy vacuum for the people who research femicides and domestic violence and are trying to prevent it. So we're really reliant on police as a source of of this particular kind of information And so when we don't understand why information is not being released or there is a lack of clarity on, I think, expectations for everybody about information being released, it becomes really difficult. The other thing that I think is important to mention is we're sort of talking about police releasing information about victims, but often this information is also shared online really rapidly. That's something the Edmonton Police Report also points out. So social media, sort of in-person um, names are being shared. And so in order to be able to confirm that information and make sure that, you know, misinformation isn't being spread, it's really important to be able to have the right information and to be able to put that out there as well. because. It's, as we all know, it's really easy for people to hear a name and jump to a conclusion about who it is. They might be wrong, wrong photographs might be circulated, all kinds of things might happen. And if, you know, you're not giving people a reliable source of information to go to to confirm, that creates an issue as well.
0: The Big Story will be back in just a minute. So it's one thing for me to ask another journalist about why police should release names uh, to journalists and other people so that they can do their jobs, which obviously are important. But when you dug into this story, you guys talked to victims' rights groups, and I'm interested in what they said, mostly because I could see them being on either side of this issue.
1: I think the pointing out that it's kind of they could be on either side of the issue is the important part of it. Um, you know, I was struck by one police force responding to us, sort of really stressing we're a we're a victim-centric police force in in their decision making. But it's not entirely clear to me what that means because um, you know, we spoke to um, the ombudsman for victims, um, Heidi Ellingworth, who is a really thoughtful person whose job it is to advocate for victims' rights. And she pointed out the there is this sort of, you know, on one hand, we can all sympathize with this. I think that, you know, this is the release of this kind of information sort of at the worst time in somebody's life, a family's life. Losing a loved one can feel really difficult. Um, You know, to have media reaching out can feel really invasive. There's a question about, you know, wanting to be in control of the information that's coming out. It, It can, you know, no one expects to find themselves in that kind of position. So you can, Really understand, sort of, you know, a request for privacy. But on the other hand, you know, an important part of victims' rights groups and what they advocate for is safety and the prevention of crime. And steps can be taken to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else, you know, holding um, our institutions accountable for failures when they've failed to protect somebody or failed to intervene. Um, and this is, again, coming back to the domestic violence piece, this was just something that um, domestic violence groups really clear about when they were speaking in in the report I keep referencing and is something that sort of in my work reporting on domestic common sites that femicide researchers also say like it's very important for us to understand the trends and patterns in these kinds of deaths to understand who is being killed, who is being failed by our institutions and also to make sure we're not ignoring or overlooking somebody's murder. It's it's the quote from, from Paula Simons is that, you know, a murder is, is something that affects the community. And I think that that's not maybe the perspective that everybody has because it's also understandably sort of deeply personal one, but there is like, you know, it's a community problem. Um, and again, particularly again with domestic violence, there has been long this sense of it's a private thing. It's something that, you know, is behind closed doors. It's nobody's business. And advocates have worked for a long time to change that perspective and to sort of have a situation where information is not being released sort of counters that uh, counters that work. So it is really complicated. And often, you know, I think these issues are really emotional and like nobody wants to cause further pain to somebody who's going through pain. But it's a really it is a complex issue um, and there's a lot of different perspectives on it. Um, But that's where clarity, I think, can be important and sort of having a clear policy about how things are going to work and how the information can be released in the best possible way could be really helpful. And that's sort of what Heidi had told us, that like clarity and giving people all the information they need, families of victims, the information they need and the support they need, that could go a long way.
0: The last thing I want to ask you is, I guess, just an extrapolation. Of What we've been talking about, you know, you mentioned that there was one domestic incident which almost slipped through. You've mentioned a lack of resources at smaller papers uh, or a lack of smaller papers around the country. If we don't have a clear policy on this, what are the chances that some murders get missed?
1: We had already sort of started looking into this story when I found out through a source that a person uh, in custody at Toronto's Detention Center had died of COVID nineteen, and when I started to try and find out more about that case, I couldn't find any information, and it was a murder case, and I was stunned that there was no information hmm. available, and when I started looking into it through court records and found the information about the case. I I couldn't believe that there was no record of this. And I know that there's no record of it because that year in 2019, I personally went through all of the domestic homicides in the GTA and compiled numbers for for a story about the sort of increase over the last couple of years. And I missed and, and it turns out that I missed one because Toronto Police never put out a press release when I asked about it. I assume they would say, you know, it was around Christmas time, it was a mistake, we were understaffed, you know, like it was just an oversight, and we're really sorry that this happened. But they didn't say that. They said the investigator didn't request a press release. And that, to me, is the clearest example of why we need a clear policy and clarity across police forces, because it's very, it also differs from police force to police force as we saw in Edmonton, it can change like over the years. and the fact that this is so subjective and that an entire woman's murder by her husband could go completely unacknowledged, unacknowledged by femicide reports, by people who track these numbers and release them and hold vigils every year. All of this can go completely unremarked is is just it's shocking to me. People might say, well, that information was available through the course, but that is not a solution because, as I've as I've said, there's, it's just not possible for people to be everywhere at the same, you know, to be in every court at the same time to make sure you're not missing something, that it shouldn't be the standard that we expect. You know, across the board, clarity could really help in preventing, I think, some of the confusion that exists around when information is going to be released and how it's going to be released but at the very least, it, we shouldn't have a situation where homicides are not being reported at all. That seems, that's at least the baseline.
0: Alicia, thank you so much for explaining this to us. It's a really complicated issue.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Alicia Hashem of the Toronto Star. That was the Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca find us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. And as always, email us the Big Story Podcast all one word, all lowercase or not, uppercase works too, at rci.rogers.com. If you see us in any podcast player you like to use, please give us a follow, give us a rating, give us a review. We appreciate everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.